This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is Eric Dietrich, Deputy Editor at Montana Free Press, where he leads the Long Streets Project, an initiative that conducts in-depth reporting on Montana's economy. Eric's recent reporting has focused on housing, and in particular, Governor Gianforte's housing task force. This really isn't necessarily a Democratic-Republican issue in the, the way that a lot of stuff is. Like, there's not a clean partisan split over housing. That's one of the things that makes it super interesting to cover as a reporter. We'll talk about the recommendations that group came up with and what we can expect in the upcoming legislative session. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me here. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? I grew up in a suburb of Portland, Oregon. My parents are both engineers. My mom was a civil engineer and my, my dad was a computer engineer. And you came to Montana State to study engineering. I did, yeah. I was on track to be a, a third-gen engineer and then got sucked into the student newspaper. So what, what was me? Now, now, I'm a, now I'm a reporter. There you go. And you've made your way to Montana Free Press and kind of a focus on the economy and on data journalism. I would assume that that sort of fluency with with math and numbers, data sort of led you down that path. You want to describe how you kind of carved out your particular niche in journalism? Yeah. So I've never, never, ever regretted uh, having an analytical degree. I spent spent a lot of time working through, you know, late nights through like, you know, calculations by hand of algebra and stuff on engineering paper in college. And, and I don't do a lot of that anymore. Um, But at the same time, having gone run through that gauntlet gives you a pretty solid toolkit in terms of being able to do things like, like look at the state budget and, and only be half overwhelmed instead of entirely overwhelmed when you're trying to make sense of that spreadsheet. So I've been, kind of evolved into data journalism a little bit over the course of my career, which is something I'm educated at and, and some days feel good at. But I, I've done that kind of in parallel with Beats. Uh, my first newspaper job in Great Falls, I covered crime. And then I moved to Bozeman for, for the newspaper there, the Daily Chronicle, and spent two or three years covering City Hall, which is where I really got into covering housing for the first time. Because yeah. then, as now, that was very much a top of mind issue for the community. Housing is an issue that not many folks in Montana and the West in general are all that happy about. In your view, what is the state of play of housing in the state of Montana right now? Right. So there's there's not enough of it. And it, uh, what's there, probably because there's not enough of it, has gotten too expensive. There's a poll that came out of some researchers at UM, or, or commissioned by some researchers at UM earlier this year that, that found I think three quarters of Montanans consider lack of affordable housing. I think I think it was three quarters were either extremely serious or very serious for like the wording on one of those, like pick how you feel about this polls, yeah. poll choice things, which is basically universal. We wrote a story about it. Um, one of my colleagues did and all the reader response we got was what are the other quarter of people thinking? So it's right. like, it, you know, it's no secret that that's a top of mind issue. Costs have come up a lot, both over the last 10 years and particularly in the pandemic, because we've had an, an influx of people moving here, here because remote work is easier other reasons as well. And I think that the gist of it is that there really just isn't enough housing to accommodate all the people that want to live in Montana. There are other dynamics at play too, for sure, with housing, but like that's really the nut of it. And you just have not built enough houses relative to the desire for people to be here. Yeah, you know, there, there's the stat that's been thrown around a bunch because it was, you know, some researchers came in and told it to a bunch of lawmakers that keep repeating it. And the governor's now picked up on it too. It's that between 2010 and 2020, Montana's population grew by 
but the number of housing units in the state grew by only 7%. So there's that kind of tightening of the market over the period of decades there, or well, years there. Does that sound bite kind of, is it consistent with the facts on the ground and your what your reporting has shown? Oh yeah, I think, I think that number is accurate. As I try to understand the housing market in the state, the, the idea that there just aren't ha- enough houses to go around relative to demand, it, that that I think truly is kind of the the organizing factor of how I I I find it makes sense to think about the issue. Yeah, and it would seem there's kind of two solutions: have fewer people or make more houses, right? But the, uh, how you actually right. implement either of those ideas, um, the first one sort of maybe being a little more tongue in cheek than than. Um, I intended. Yeah. How you actually sort of operationalize those ideas. It's very contentious territory. What are, what are kind of the key battlegrounds that have emerged on, on the debate uh, as to how to make more housing? Right. Yeah. So I think I want to talk about like kind of that, that demand side piece of it first, right? Because you're, sure. you're, you're right. You're like, a, yeah, you know, like it's, it's something you do here in conversation, right? If you're like talking to somebody about housing the brewing, right? You know, it's, it'd be great if just fewer people were moving here, right? And I, and I say that as like somebody who moved here, like I'm part of the problem. I can't deny that. There, there are programs that the state spends money on trying to promote people to come, try to, to market the state, mostly for tourism, but the, the nexus between tourism and people who come here and like it here and want to live here if they can is, is very, very oftentimes pretty strong. Um, and so there's, I think, some conversation, not as loud as other parts of the housing conversation. I think there's some conversation about should the state potentially scale back some of those programs? Uh, of course, the, the economic development people out there would recoil in, in horror at that idea. So mm-hmm. th- there are conversations. I'm sure the price of housing discourages people from moving here. There are market dynamics that play into that. And, and also the price of housing encourages people to relocate within the state sometimes. I hear all sorts of stories about people seeking cheaper markets can't afford a house in Bozeman. So now I'm looking at Butte or Helena or even White Sulphur Springs instead. Right, like that—that that is very much happening in the state as well. And then there's the probably what we're going to spend more time today talking about, I suspect, which is is the supply side. The, the how do you provide the housing stock that we need to, to house people in our communities in the state? Indeed. So let's get into it. The governor formed a task force to kind of dig into the housing problems in, in Montana. Uh, describe the task force. How is it constituted? What's the charge? So the governor kind of started with uh, the problem is we need to build more houses statement. That's the that's the way he framed it. The, the executive language is much more eloquent than that, of course, because it's an executive order. But that, that was kind of the, the framing point, the, the way he set things up for that task force. And he convened people together. He, they, the governor's office went out and found people to sit on the task force that that nominally represent different interest groups that are interested in the housing issue, different people working on it in different ways. So there are some lawmakers on that, both Republican and Democratic lawmakers on that. There are, you know, he has a bunch of his department heads, like the Department of Commerce Director, the, the chair is the Department of Environmental Quality Director for reasons we'll talk about in a bit. Um, and then also private sector people, a lot, lot of development sector people like real estate types or, or people trying to build apartment complexes and make money doing it, like those types of people some industry association types, um, a few people that are involved in housing from a, a nonprofit side. You know, for example, the, the chair, the, I think the executive director of the Helena Area Habitat for Humanity is on that group. So the idea was to, to pull people together that could have a productive conversation about what things the governor and the Montana legislature could do to try to address the state's housing crunch. And so the task force has submitted and presented its recommendations. We're sort of, you know, in the lead up to the 2023 legislative session. 
can you give us a summary of the the recommendations? Where do these things kind of fall down on? So there's a laundry, laundry list. Like the big, biggest things are tweaks to local government zoning power. That's probably both the, the biggest thing and the, the, probably the most contentious thing in there. For example, there's a, a proposal in there that says, hey, you know, large cities in Montana, 50,000 people or more, which would be Billings, Missoula, Great Falls, Bozeman, those areas that shouldn't be allowed to like zone residential neighborhoods only for single family homes which is something that happens, you know, this, there's a little bit of nuance here, but in general, right, like many residential neighborhoods, the zoning restrictions there say if you to buy, buy a bank at lot in that neighborhood, you, you can only build a single family house for one household there. You can't build a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex. And the, the theory is that changing zoning code so that those, they, they call them like medium density housing. It's not like an apartment uh-huh. complex, but like a duplex or a triplex. The idea is that allowing that sort of stuff to be built is a good way to get a few more people living in those neighborhoods. Those units tend to be smaller, more affordable in theory, even if they're new. And that will provide, is a way to provide more housing in neighborhoods that already have streets and sewers and water lines. And so you don't need to go out and build all those things new, which adds costs like on the outskirts of town. And also a lot of times those homes are within walking distance of like stores and downtowns and bars and all the things that people very often want to be able to walk to as well. Sure. So trying to trying to basically increase density with an existing footprint uh, using existing yeah. infrastructure. Yeah, that's really really the thrust here. And there are kind of a couple couple different. You know, like the zoning stuff gets wonky in terms of like how do you actually do that or what's keeping sure. that from happening. But like that that's essentially the thrust is like what they, that that's what the task force would by and large like to see happen. And the, the debate is really like what levers can the state pull to make that happen if that's really the direction we want to go. Is it accurate to say that the zoning policies are a constraint currently on on the housing supply? Is that framing accurate? Um, I think I would say that that framing is debated because the, the local government people, um, like the, the mayors and the city commissioners and you know, the people like the League of Cities in Town, which, which is the, the municipal advocacy organization, which say, yeah, that's a, that's a constraint sometimes, but it's not far from the only thing. And they, they would argue the task force is probably focused too much on it. And they also argue that, that there's a difference here between state level policy and local policy. Like if you go talk to the mayor of most towns, they should say, hey, me and my city commission, we should be the ones setting policy for our town because we know our community and we know what's right for our town. Instead of having the governor sign a law that like forces all the cities to do that, right, in, in a much more one size fits all way. Some of the nuance in there is, is really interesting. If, if you sort of... You know, if you buy into the premise that there's not enough homes in Montana for all the people that want to live in Montana, and then you think about this state level control versus local level control, I mean, one way to look at it is say, well, the mayors have been dragging their feet and they want this development to happen elsewhere. Same time, you know, mayors generally like it when people move into their communities. It increases the tax base. It raises property values in general. It make, makes it easier easier to set that city budget, which is could be a exactly. headache for them. Right. Do we have a problem of nimbyism in our towns or like what's kind of driving the the fact that, you know, these sort of res- restrictions still exist and haven't been changed at the local level yet? So some of it is just momentum, right? Like it, it, it's hard to change things and you know, the default action in government is not to change things because yep. like sometimes when you change things, you screw things up. 
and and some of it is that many many people who live in established neighborhoods and existing towns, especially people that were lucky enough to buy buy their homes 20 years ago with the prices that homes were 20 years ago, they they like their neighborhoods the way they are and are afraid of what change could come if you know say say if you live in a nice neighborhood in you know, University in Bozeman or Missoula, right? If you like what happens if, if it's easier for people to come in and, you know, buy that kind of old house, you know, two doors down from you and tear it down and put in something that's big that has four families with all their cars in the street. And is that going to improve your quality of life? Maybe not, maybe not, but it probably will be a good thing for the people that are able to live there. This is like a political dynamic that plays out nationally. Pretty much any community in the country that's having a conversation about housing right now, which is like pretty much all of them, like this conversation is playing out in various ways, probably with nuance I'm not catching, capturing here. Yeah. If you're a community in the U.S. who's not having a conversation about housing, you probably got a, a whole list of other problems that are pretty significant. Right. Right. Which is a challenge. It's, it's amazing that it's a national issue. And, and I, I wouldn't be, I, I don't know anything about D.C., but I wouldn't be surprised if we see federal action of some sort intended to address this over the next decade. Which will introduce kind of all that same debate about federal versus state policy and where, where decision-making is made. We'll be back to my conversation with Eric Dietrich after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is Meg Oliver, CBS News correspondent, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. We're talking about the upcoming legislative session with Eric Dietrich of Montana Free Press. The local side of it is like land use planning. Like what are the rules about who can build what where and what what sort of building permits are given out and like what are the those constraints? Like that's what we deal with at the local level. But the, the other other side that's a big deal, especially on the homeownership side, is, is the financing, right? Most middle-class American families buy homes using mortgages. And most people that are building apartment buildings or buying apartment buildings or buying houses to rent out are also taking out loans. And so conversations around interest rates and you know, who, who can and can't get approved for a loan and how does the mortgage industry work that's pretty much all federal domain stuff in terms of how banks are regulated. And that becomes really important too, right? Like one of the things we've seen in the last few months in Montana is prices have like for the most part non got, not gone up a ton or started to stabilize or gone down a little bit depending on your market. But the cost of buying a house in terms of your monthly payment is up dramatically because interest rates have risen substantially because the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates and try to like tamp down on inflation. And which makes it harder to get access to capital if you want to, say, buy a house. It makes it more expensive to finance new development as well. You mentioned that the builders and developers are borrowing money to finance their operations. They have a higher cost of capital. And one thing to, to un- understand, too, is that construction is a risky business. Um, yeah. like one, part, part of the reason we have fallen behind on home construction over the last decade, decade and a half, two decades in Montana, is that the Great Recession, you know, 2007, 2008, when that hit, that was primarily a real estate threat, you know, bubble that popped in a, a bad way and, and big chunks of our financing system, the national level fell apart. And a lot of people in the construction industry, you know, I should say in the real estate industry, because it's not just people building stuff, it's also people building land and engineers and all that. 
that industry was hit really hard. A lot of people who were in that industry lost their shirt, went out of business and went and found, you know, presumably went and found other jobs. And so there have been fewer people in the construction industry, in the trades since as a result of the fallout from that. And that's that's part of the dynamic that we're seeing is that we, you know, there's a workforce challenge on top of the the, 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 the pandemic era, you know, supply chain challenges that we all have heard about too. Yeah. So Eric, let's touch on some of the other topics in, in, in this report out by this task force. So accessory dwelling units are something that, that we hear about. It's essentially, it's, it's taking your, your lot, if you have, say, a single family home, like traditional house and yard, and saying, hey, you know, could I put an apartment on top of my garage? Or could I build a little cottage in my backyard? And either rent that out to somebody or maybe like let my aging family member and my aging parents move in with me so they're close and I can kind of keep an eye on them without having them be too close in the same house. And the, the, the form factor for those, there, there are a lot of different options. Like, it's, you know, people say, well, sometimes you see people like convert like an attached garage to kind of similar to the idea about like allowing duplex or triplex housing on, on resident on single family lots. The idea with that is it's just a relatively cheap way to bring more housing into our neighborhoods to give more people the opportunity to live in existing neighborhoods where there's already the infrastructure for them. So the, there was also a piece in the housing task force report that suggests the governor recommend to the legislature that they pass a law that basically says local governments can't keep people from building ADUs if people want to build ADUs. Yeah. And so that, again, we get down to the issue of local versus state control. And a lot of local control advocates will say that, well, we don't have the infrastructure for it. It puts too much stress on the water and sewer. And I want to be careful about the nuance, because I think in, in, okay. some, in some communities, right, they, they are taking action to do a lot of this stuff, right? And it, it's fairly well conventional wisdom in the, in the land use planning world right now that like this stuff is worth doing. And this is like one of the best strategies to address the housing crisis. I haven't talked to many people that are prof- expert professionals that disagree with that premise, but, but it's a question of implementation details, you know, so maybe some, you know, like Bozeman, for example, is, is taking steps to do some of this stuff, right? Like with a l- more nuance than there is in the, the, the uh, white paper from the housing task force, like they're trying to rewrite their zoning code to make some of this possible in certain places where they think it makes sense. Right. But you have in the, the the classic example, which you think you alluded to, is that well, if you if you if you pass a law that says cities can't keep people from building duplexes anywhere where they want to, right? What if you have a neighborhood where all the sewer lines are already full, and you take half the houses in that neighborhood and convert them to duplexes? Like, what happens when people try to flush their toilets? That's a problem. Right? And so, yeah, the, the, yeah that's a potential problem. The, the other thing that you get you'll get people calling in angry about this, be saying this, but uh, you do have to worry about um, parking sometimes too, right? Like that's, a, that's a point of concern, right? If, it's if most Montana adults have their own car and those cars have to be parked someplace when they're not in use. And so there's worry sometimes about like crowding on-street parking too full unless you build more parking on-site when you redevelop stuff for higher density. Of course, adding parking on-site is like a real headache if you're an architect. So it can be very expensive. So there are just challenges around that too in terms of that, that infrastructure question as well. Yeah. And then another thing that's probably difficult to write policy around, I would imagine, are, you know, you're trying to, the premise is by adding ADUs, for example, you're trying to provide more housing for folks, but sometimes those ADUs become Airbnbs and VRBO rentals that sort of right. drive tourism economy in some ways, but don't exactly create uh, housing for people that want to be here for uh, the long term. You know, Airbnbs, you know, like they, they've, they're very much an innovation in real estate, and they, and are 
wonderful to stay at sometimes and provide an income stream for people sometimes, but also like they, they erode the line between housing for tourists and housing for residents in a way that I think has been fairly new to a state. Vacation rentals have been around for forever, but you know, Airbnbs have definitely become made that practice more popular. And so that, that the task force thought about that, didn't really make a recommendation. There's a line in their, ta- their report that says, you know, we, we think Airbnbs are worth monitoring. There are a lot of them in some Montana communities, but we haven't been able to reach agreement about what we should do about it. So there's a, it is acknowledgement of that. Um, we might hear conversation about that at the legislature this year. The, that will run into the political dynamics of the legislature, which in that it's, we have a Republican governor that's a free market guy. We have Republican controlled legislature. Most Republican lawmakers are also free market guys or gals. You know, so they, they, they like, hey, let's make it easier to build, like is in, in an ideological sense. That's like an easier sell, given those political dynamics. But like tell property owners they can't do Airbnbs if they want to. That's a much harder sell, regardless of whether you think it's good policy, right? Like it's just politic, the political dynamics kind of pull, you know, the, the government that Montanans have elected for ourselves pull, pulls more towards free market than it does towards you know, that regulatory approach. Yeah. So how do you think this will all play out in the legislature? What do you think are the, like the key pieces of legislation that maybe will get introduced in the sort of key issues that will um, be the most contentious in this upcoming session? I think that the things I'm going to be watching for as I cover this is I'm going to be watching which of these proposals coming out of the housing task force, the governor throws his weight behind, like which, which wings we start to see press releases from the governor's office about like where, where we see bills introduced where lawmakers are getting up and saying, I'm sponsoring this. The governor's behind this. You better vote for it. You guys. The other thing I'm going to be I'm interested in seeing is kind of seeing which factions in the legislature end up falling behind this. Like house, housing is interesting because this really isn't like necessarily a democratic Republican issue in the, the way that a lot of stuff is. Like, there's not a clean partisan split over housing. That's one of the things that makes it super interesting to cover as a reporter. What's your view of the Come Home Montana campaign? And you know how does that sort of square with these housing task force recommendations? Are, are, are we going to, are we talking out of both sides of our mouth or can, can, are the two uh, initiatives sort of work together? For listeners who aren't familiar, the Come Home campaign has been a signature initiative of the governor. It's been something he's wanted to do for years and years and years and years. You've talked about this, like back when he first ran for governor in 2016. And essentially it's like encouraging Montana kids that have grown up in the state and moved elsewhere for work to come back to the state, build lives here. You know, the, the image he conjures is like, you should come back so you can be at Sunday dinner with your family. That would be great. And so the, the state has spent a fair bit of money on a marketing campaign since Gianforte took office, since Governor Greg Gianforte took office to uh, basically they send a bunch of glossy mailings to Montana university graduates saying, hey, Montana is great. You should come home. And that, of course, created a bunch of buzz because you know, the people that like to be snarky on social media or just snarky over their coffee or over their beer were quick to point out that, why is he encouraging people to do this given that we have a housing crisis? And so there's a, a, that potential conundrum. You know, the, the governor's office, when I asked them about this, they basically said, like, why would why would we not encourage Montanans to come back home? Like, they've got a right to be here, too. And and also those people tend to come back if they can move back with you know, the, the governor's line is, is always, can they bring jobs back with them? Can they bring their jobs back home, which is a way of bringing high wage jobs in our communities, which is good for economic development generally. And so there's a little bit of a values question there, right? Does, does it make sense to be keeping the the foot the the state's foot on the the 
promotional gas pedal at a time where arguably the state's biggest economic issue is too many people in the state relative to housing stock. And and that's that's a political question. It's a values question. As a reporter, I should not be like saying, this is my opinion on that. I should be listening to people that have opinions on that and trying to think about what they're saying. Makes sense. Another kind of priority area for the for the Governor Gianforte's uh, administration is sort of re- relieving red tape. And so uh, some of the, the the recommendations by the task force would certainly do that. Uh, how do you square those two kind of themes of this administration, build more housing, make it easier to build, streamline processes? Is that kind of how it, how it lines out? Yeah, that's, well, that's, that's the thing that they see as the lowest hanging fruit, right? Because again, yeah. again like the, the, the governing philosophy is free market, get the government out of the way and let, you know, let good Montana industry solve the problem. And yeah, so like I think a lot of like what they're doing is, hey, yeah, like do we really need this rule if it, it's causing developers a headache? Is it is it suffering a good purpose? And if not, let's get rid of it. And there's nuance to that. And I, and, I, and to be to be, to the governor's credit, right? I've I've heard him in public meetings say we need to to get rid of this regulatory red tape where we can do it without jeopardizing the public health health and welfare, right? And so you have to continue to figure out how to balance things well. Balance, yeah, not an easy um, thing to achieve in this particular area. Eric, just one more in our remaining time. Uh, we'll shift gears a little bit. You've made the choice to work for Montana Free Press. It's one of a number of rising journalism endeavors here in Montana in the nonprofit space. Talk about that for a moment. Why, why was that a good choice for you? What do you think of this nonprofit journalism model and why do you think it's been successful in Montana? Great. Yeah. So Montana Free Press is a 501c3 supported nonprofit as, you know, kind of similar to public radio, actually, in that um, our, our budget, the money that pays my salary, that the money, the money that has made it possible for me to buy a home in Montana is coming from mostly donors to Montana Free Press, also some grant money. That's in contrast to like, say, a traditional newspaper or TV station where the, the money has been historically selling advertising. And so you have a reporter write a story and there's an advertisement next to it or a commercial break. And the advertisement or commercial break is what pays the reporter's salary. At Free Press, it's it's reader support. Basically what has happened the last 20, 30 years is that is the, the, the advertising supported business model, especially for like Montana scale or local scale media, the business has just fallen apart. Um, Facebook and Google have, have eaten the newspaper industry in particular's lunch. And so newspapers have like had to lay people off and cut the number of pages and, you know, and just kind of retreat from coverage that they once were able to do. The idea with the, the nonprofit news outlets like, like Free Press is that if we can leverage philanthropic support to help pay people like me to do things like sit in housing task force meetings and think about what's going on there and, and try to relay what's happening in a hopefully a fair, comprehensive way, that fills in some of the gap that's left as newspapers have have uh, receded. Well, Eric, I am glad you are on that watch and we all benefit from it in this state with the great reporting that you and your colleagues do. I hope um, so. Maybe, yeah. So maybe we can uh, reconvene this conversation sometime yeah. during the legislative session or after it's um, concluded and sort of see what was done, what wasn't, and, and what that will mean for Montanans and, and their, where they want to live. I'd love to. Thanks for having me here. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. 
and we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. Social media by AJ Williams. And Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.